Today, Word by Word offers you a very special listening experience on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. That is because our conversation with Greg Saris is about his new collection of Miwok creation stories entitled, How the Mountain Was Made. Greg wears many hats. He is in his 27th year as a professor of creative writing, holds the Great and Rancheria Endowed Chair in Writing and Native American Studies at Sonoma State University, and is serving his 13th term as Chairman of the Federated Indians of Grayton Rancheria. He is also an award-winning novelist, screenwriter, and historian who tells us that his most lasting legacy may be as a storyteller. I hope so. Okay. <laughs> as Greg explains, the Miwok people's most important contribution to Sonoma County is our creation myths, yet they are known to very few people. For example, to us, Sonoma Mountain is the center of all creation. It is said that Coyote was sitting atop Sonoma Mountain when he decided to create the world and people. As a storyteller, my task is to reimagine and share these tales with my neighbors. Greg Saris, welcome back to Word by Word. Thank you so much for having me, Gil. Okay. Although you've written these stories down and collected them in one volume, you're not the one who tells the stories between the pages. You've left that task to two very important sisters. So describe them to us. Uh, yeah, um, and they're creations of mine, actually. Oh, um, they are? Yes, oh. uh, Answer Woman and Question Woman, because, well, let me tell you who they are. And they're, they're twin sisters, either crows, and the crows were the, uh, twin sisters were the crows of uh, Coyote. And let, let me just be go back a bit and say that these stories come from that time that we believe was the time before the one we're living in now, when all the animals were people. Mm-hmm. So Coyote had twin granddaughters, and they were crows, so we said. Um, and I I wanted to replicate the or- feeling of the oral tradition of people talking, telling stories. Um, we used to tell these stories in the wintertime in cycles. And for the people who were hearing the stories, they were very familiar with the places and the landscape and the behavior of a lot of a- other animals. So the storyteller could telegraph things without going into specific detail. But for you and me and many Indian people, even today, we don't know anymore a, a lot of that. So I had to create um, separate, almost complete tales, if you will. and Standalone tales. Standalone tales, yes. yes. Um, that could stand alone. And so, but then, I, and you know, I looked at the Grimm's uh, tales, fairy tales and things, and some of the Western stories for models, but I wanted to keep that sense of the oral tradition alive. Mm-hmm. So I thought of Coyote's uh, do- uh, twin granddaughters, the Crow uh, sisters, and I thought, why don't I make one answer woman and question woman? So that one is asking questions and she can't remember the stories, but then the person, the the sister who is answer woman, can't remember the answers unless she's asked the question. What I liked about that was that there wasn't just the oral, let's tell a story kind of element to it, but that these sisters, like everything on the mountain, were interdependent and dependent on one another for the stories to be told. Well, anyone who lives in the area who reads the book will identify. I mean, it, everything that you mention is, you know, close at hand, and all you have to do is open your eyes to see the lupins and the poppies and, and the, you know, the um, the tree that provides the, the blue coat and the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all here. 
Yes, it is. It is, Gil. I mean, and I, you said something key, if you open your eyes. And I think that if nothing else, maybe the book will help us open our eyes and remember the place. We're all here now, and it's our home. And at one time, um, the landscape was the sacred text, was the Bible, if you will, mm -hmm. for the indigenous people. Um, a bir birds or an outcropping of rocks or a creek or a spring were all mnemonic pegs on which we hung stories. So you read the landscape. The landscape reminded you. When the flowers came, you were reminded of certain stories and of certain rules and ways to live. Um, when we get removed, all of us, Indian and non-Indian alike, and become homeless, in a sense, in our home, we what can we do now to come home and once again learn from the land and the lessons it has to teach. So I wanted to, I wanted to kind of, um, if people's eyes were open, make the world a little brighter, and if they weren't open, um, open them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you've done that. Now, one of the things that I found fascinating as I read through the book, I like, I love the creation of the, you know, the answer woman and the question woman, and the, you, the, the fact that you need both to right. have the story as a whole. Um, and what I'd love to have you read from the first uh, entry in your book, The Pretty Woman and the Necklace. Could you do that for sure. us? Sure. Okay. Now, the <clears> reason <throat> I'm doing this is multifold. I'm not sure you even know it yet, but it, it uh, happens that I took classes in storytelling when I was in college, and, and certain things are required to tell a good story, and they're all here. Well, thank you. Um, when I hear that, I think... Gil should have written the book because I, I, I've I've done so many um, uh, adult fiction mm -hmm. and novels and screenplays and essays, even academic essays. Even I hadn't a lot of experience and hadn't studied, for that matter, Gil children's stories. I had to pick them up when I started this. Okay. So well, you've done a um, masterful job teaching yourself. I took a class and the professor just gave me an A. Thank you, Gil. <laughs> 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 so um, I will read The Pretty Woman in the Necklace. Okay. There was once a very pretty woman who lived near the top of the mountain in a village alongside the headwaters of Copeland Creek. She fancied a young man from the bottom of the mountain who lived in a village at the edge of Katati Plain. The pretty young woman's father was a well-respected man. He possessed many songs, and people near and far sought him for advice and to hear his songs. Father! the young woman said to him. There is a man, I fancy, at the bottom of the mountain, and I worry that he will not find me attractive. The father couldn't believe his ears. But how is that, daughter? You are young and beautiful and come from good people. Ah, but father, this young man lives at the bottom of the mountain in a village at the edge of Katati Plain, and many people pass through the village. He must see many beautiful young women every day. I must stand out. I want him to see me and know others. The wise father advised her that she must not push her luck, that she should stand before the young man on her own merits. He reminded her that pushing one's luck, much like trickery, often brought about regret. Then he made a beautiful necklace of abalone pendants and clamshell disc beads and gave it to her. Wear this necklace when you visit the young man, he advised her. He showed her how to double the beautiful necklace around her neck so that the young man, indeed all of the people in the young man's village, would know who she was and where she came from. 
But the pretty young woman wasn't satisfied with the necklace. She didn't think the beautiful necklace was enough to attract the young man so that he wouldn't take his eyes off of her. That night, she dreamed of a hillside. She actually knew of the hill, which wasn't too far from her village, and she saw a string of rocks just below the hill's crest. How beautiful these rocks look, she said to herself when she woke up. Those rocks look like a magnificent necklace on that hill. She figured if she couldn't stop thinking about those rocks, then neither would the young man she fancied. But how would she make a necklace from those rocks for herself? Then she got an idea. She would ask the animals for help. After all, she did have special songs from her wise father for the purpose of talking to the animals. Bear could carry the rocks, but Bear was forgetful and might lose his way to the hillside. She would have to ask Cooper's hawk to hover over the spot so Bear could look up from time to time and know where to go. Then, once the rocks were piled at the creek, the dirt and lichen would have to be cleaned off of them. She would ask Fly to do that. And then, before the rocks were made smooth in the water, they would have to be ground down to size. She would ask Pileated Woodpecker to grind down the rocks. So she sang her animal songs, and first she spoke with Cooper's Hawk. She said, Cooper's Hawk, you fly so high, no one can miss your outstretched wings. Will you do me a favor? Cooper's Hawk, perched on a bay laurel branch, agreed to help the pretty young woman and asked what she wanted. Will you hover over yonder hillside where a string of rock stretches below the crest of the hill? With the pretty woman's request, Cooper's Hawk flew off, singing this song, Where I am looking, where I am looking, even the smallest mouse I can see. Then the pretty young woman spoke to Bear, Bear, you are so strong, you can run up the mountain as if it were nothing. Will you do me a favor? Bear, sitting upright alongside the creek, agreed to help the pretty young woman, and asked what she wanted. Will you go to yonder hillside where Cooper's hawk flies and carry back to this place many of the rocks that stretch below the crest of the hill? Then Bear ran off, singing this song, Light as a feather, light as a feather, straight ahead I go. Next, the pretty young woman spoke to Fly. Fly, you work so hard, you can work all day at the most tedious job without getting tired. Will you do me a favor? Fly, sitting on a stone near the gurgling water, agreed to help the pretty young woman and asked what she wanted. Will you clean the dirt and lichen off the many rocks that Bear will pile here next to the creek? When Bear left the first rock, Fly got busy and was singing this song. Small as I am, small as I am, even the rustling wind doesn't forget me. Finally, the pretty young woman spoke to Pileated Woodpecker. Pileated Woodpecker, what a wondrous beak you have. You can drill holes in the hardest wood. Will you do me a favor? Pileated Woodpecker, clinging to the side of an oak tree, agreed to help the pretty young woman and asked what she wanted. Bear has carried many rocks to the creek from yonder hillside where Cooper's hawk flies. Fly is busy cleaning the dirt and lichen off of them. Will you use your powerful beak to grind the rocks down to size so that I can make a necklace with them? Sure, but how many rocks do you need ground down to size? asked Pileated Woodpecker. I'll tell you when there are enough, answered the pretty young woman. 
pileated woodpecker shrugged his shoulders and then went to work chipping the rocks down to size. All the while he sang this song, No headache, no headache, but dreaming of nuts. But the pretty, but the truth is the pretty young woman didn't know how many rocks she needed for the necklace she wanted. Soon it was winter. Cooper's hawk was still flying above the hillside. Bear had carried many rocks by then. Fly had cleaned many of the rocks and kept the clean ones in a separate pile. Pileated woodpecker kept chipping away and had by this time many round rocks of various sizes, though hardly enough rocks the right size for a necklace. Keep working, the pretty woman said to the animals. Then it began to rain. At first, the pretty woman wasn't concerned, but before long, she could see that there was a major storm upon the mountain. The headwaters of Copeland Creek swelled and spread, so strong that the torrential waters began carrying the rocks downstream. Never mind, keep working, the pretty young woman said to the animals. It rained and rained. Soon, nearly all of the rocks went crashing down Copeland Creek. Never mind, keep working, the pretty young woman said again and again. Cooper's hawk was the first to speak then. I quit. I'm not going to hover over yonder hillside any longer. If I keep flying there and Bear takes all of the rocks, where will I hunt for mice? Then Bear spoke up. I quit too. If Cooper's hawk doesn't hover over yonder hillside, I might forget where the rocks are and keep traveling until I'm lost. Then Fly spoke. Getting lost would be the least of your problems, Bear. You need salmon for that strong body of yours. Without salmon, you will die. The winds tell me when the salmon are coming up the creek, and if I am so busy cleaning dirt and lichen off of these rocks, then when will I have time to listen to the wind? So I must quit this business, too. Finally... Pileated woodpecker spoke. Me too. I must quit. If something happens to bear, then who will I have to knock acorns out of the trees for me each fall? Who else is that tall and strong? Oh, please keep working, the pretty young woman pleaded. What else am I going to do? I must have that necklace. A large ripple of water rose up then and took the last of the rocks. Tell me, what am I going to do now, the pretty young woman hollered. The animals could see the pretty woman was extremely upset, and she was mad at them for not helping her any longer. They thought of suggesting she go to her wise father and ask his advice. But they knew she would not go to her father. Besides, the animals knew that her father would tell her that she had pushed her luck instead of standing on her own merits. Her father had given her a beautiful necklace, which was all she needed to attract the young man she fancied at the bottom of the mountain. She was tricked instead by her insecurity and a silly dream. Yet even the animals wanted to speak again with the pretty young woman. They could not, for she had run down the mountainside chasing after her rocks. Copeland Creek emptied those rocks near the bottom of the hill, just past the bridge on Lichow Road. When the water is low during the summer, you can see the rocks of various sizes scattered about the creek bed, and summer nights, when the moon is full, the rocks look like large eggs. Sometimes you will see the pretty woman, not so young anymore, wandering about, wondering how she will get someone to help her make a necklace. Aha. Okay. Well, the first important thing you need for a good story is a voice. And you have that, and you have written that. I mean, I could read it, you could read it, you could read it. It would still have the same meter. 
because of how you've constructed it. Yeah. Read the first paragraph, sentence again. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you uh, to think about other openings for fairy tales. There was once a very pretty woman who lived near the top of the mountain in a village alongside the headwaters of Copeland Creek. Perfect. There was once a pretty woman. So what have you done with that? I don't even know if you knew this, but you basically said a time and place in a galaxy far, far away. Once upon a time, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. You need yeah. that introductory sentence, and it opens the book immediately to becoming familiar. Even though you have not know, know these characters, you don't know these stories, you may not even know these locales, but there's something that goes back to when you were a child. Yes, yeah. And you heard these stories shared, you know, with your parents and grandparents. Yeah, and yeah, there was, yeah, there was always, we heard these stories, there was once a time, and so as a kid and growing up, you always thought about these things. So when you walked around, and I mean, to this day, Gil, when I drive up and down, I live on Sonoma Mountain, I cross that bridge at, uh, at the creek at Copeland Creek, and you see those round rocks there. Mm -hmm. And they are a unique feature of the landscape mm -hmm. here. If you go around, you'll see them. And um, when the rains, not enough this winter, but a couple, was it last winter when we had the torrential rains? Right. Um, those, whenever you have that rains and the creek overflows there, those round rocks are all over the road. Mm -hmm. And you can hear them um, when the water's rushing down the hill. You hear the rocks banging on one another. Right. We didn't know yeah. they were shaped by the woodpecker, though. Yes, uh, the pileated woodpecker. Yeah, right. he's right. always busy. <laughs> the other thing, of course, is, is part of this is, is the pace of the story and repetition. Yeah. And you've done that masterfully because you take the same thing and you present it again, but from different points of view. And the magic number, do you know what the magic numbers in fairy tales are? Three or four? Well, and for four, it's, uh, for us, that's a sacred number. Well, then yeah. it's perfectly understand. Yeah. You have four animals. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All who are providing input, a critical part of yeah. making this necklace and making the legacy of having the rocks in the creek. Right. It's a beautiful story, and then you have for for you know one of the re another reasons I wanted to write these is um, I wanted to kind of give us all of us an um, some kind of a another story an antidote if you will to the stories we heard the dark ugly scary fairy tales of wolf eating people or the fantasy of Cinderella you know you grow up young women grow up. And um, we talked about this, I think, before, Gil. Young women grow up and people grow up, and the message there is if you suffer enough, the prince will come. Right. If you work hard enough, you'll be rewarded. And the whole goal is to be rich or to be special and all of that. Whereas these stories, it reminds you always that your vanity and so forth, your um, unchecked passions will get you in trouble. Your unchecked passions, yes, because be, the important thing is that there's going to be a consequence of whatever you do, right? Yeah, in the Indian world, we don't believe that death is caused, uh, that death just happens. Uh, there's no such thing um, as an accident. Mm -hmm. It's always cause and effect. <laughs> I did not know till I read your book that is Coyote, the famous... Uh, I guess the most famous part of, of Native American folklore, at least, you know, west of the Mississippi. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I can't say for all tribes, but he's ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the interesting thing about Coyote as a creator is he is fully human. 
mm-hmm. with foolishness and passions, and he, he gets in trouble and has things to learn. And he's the one that created, via some good things and also some mistakes, i.e. death and other things that come about that because of things he did, um, our universe. It's very different, antithetical, in fact, to the Western view where you have an almighty being who creates a great chain of beings, starting with God, the Son of God, and then the priest, the Pope, all the way down to dirt and, dirt and rocks. For us, everything is power and has something in it. And the minute anything, including us as individuals, think that we are smart or better than we become coyote-like. We can get in trouble. Right. It'll he, come back on he us. He repeatedly gets in trouble. He repeatedly he? gets in trouble because of the things. You know, we always believed that if you um, did things wrong, killed or hurt people or stole, things would come back on you. People had songs and power, and things would come back on you. And the southwestern Pomo, the Kishaya, um, the old people used to call um, the Europeans or white people, they used to call them palacha, which means miracles. And I used to ask the old people, why do you call white people miracles? And they said, well, you know, when they came here and they were killing people and chopping down trees and killing animals and damming up the water and doing all these things that we thought if we did those things, we'd get punished. It all come back on us. And instead of them getting punished, more of them kept coming. And we thought they were miraculous. But Gil, as you know today, it has all come back on us. It's coming back on us constantly. With the old people, the Indians just had a fast track to karma. Took us about <laughs> 150 years, right? <laughs> yeah, some major stumbling blocks along the way. Though. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. are we going to be coyote-like? And what that does is it positions you as an individual to be responsible for your actions and think for yourself. And that's consistent within your stories. Right. Because When some people do not do that, there is a consequence. There is always a consequence, right. as it was with coyote. Right. Or even the animals that, you know, get coyote-like. A lot of all these animals, remember, they were all people at this time. So they all get ideas. They all yeah, but think that's they're the, smart. This, is, <laughs> this was an interesting thing to try to write about. You know, what is people and what is people? Yeah. So I ended up calling them human beings. Yes. Is in a contrast. Yeah. Because everybody was an animal, had right. an animal form. Right. And they hadn't even been split into two yet, which is going to come in the book. That comes in the book, and what happens is, as you know, without giving it all away, sort of the dumbest one ends up being the person. And that's what we believe. And it was because of our greed and so forth that we got separated from things, or this split kind of happened. And so for us, rather than dominating the animals or thinking we're smarter than, we're constantly supposed to be reminded that we still have to learn and reconnect. Right. Well, Coyote is not uh, without his flaws, no. <laughs> shall we say. And uh, one of the stories that you tell um, is is how he created the sun and the moon. Now, interestingly enough, there is a sun before this yeah. in, your, in your book. Yeah. But apparently because of the action he does, should I describe it? I mean, or you describe it. What does he do with his son? Well, first, yeah, let me first tell you a couple things. Um, you know, sometimes you'll see repetition, like there'll be a son before, or water's created. It's, you'll have uh, his wife, frog woman, down there um, washing clothes or leaching acorns. And then later on, the Indians, the stories will have her tears creating streams and stuff. And the ethnographers and anthropologists went nuts. They said, are these Indians so stupid they can't even keep linear order? We weren't interested in linear order at all. We were just telling <laughs> stories. Creation is happening left and right and re-happening and all of that. Is it the same coyote? 
I think so. It's the same spirit. Okay. Let's 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 maybe he, I can say that he is in in Native American myth. He's a shapeshifter. Yes, and he and he and he's also um, vain and all of those sorts of things. You you know this the the movie Moana. I hope you've seen that. Yes. Yeah. And you've got you know the the demigod Maui yeah. who's coyote. Yes. Right. Yes. Does the same kind of dumb things. Creates things. Goes and makes mistakes. Gets cast out by the humans, et cetera, et cetera. A fumbler. A fumbler. Yes. Yeah. As, as not not ill, you know, not ill will. Just a fu- that's a good word. A fumbler. Yeah. And so, if you're reminded of these stories and reminding how reminded of how all of us are coyote like, it should make you stop and think. Number one, and remind remind you to be humble in the face of all things. It decenters you as a knower. You're not the center of the universe. You're part of something. And anytime you start thinking you're separate, there will be consequences. But let me get back to Coyote and his two sons again. He was married to Frog Woman up mm-hmm. there, and she was a. They had two sons, and she was a wonderful woman. I mean, worked very hard. Loved those two children very much and um she was spending more time than coyote wanted and he wanted to with them with them and you know he he wanted her to cook with him he wanted as the old people one of my great aunts used to say he was a kind of a horny guy he wanted more time with her alone and blah 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 and she was always busy so he got an idea and that idea was while she was down leeching acorns and he was watching the two young sons he would get rid of them and so he took one and threw him up into the sky, and he became the sun. And then he took the other one up and threw him into the sky, and he became the moon. Well, she came back with her acorn mush all leached and looked around and said, where, where are the boys? Where did they go? And he said, uh, I got rid of them. And she said, what? And he said, you don't have any time for me. You don't, you don't have any time for me. You know, I'm getting sick of you. You know, all you do is take care of those kids. And, uh, you know, she got very upset. And he said, look it, you can, you can always see one of them. In the day, you can look up and see one. And in the night, you can look up and see the other. Well, that didn't appease her at all. And um, she kept crying and crying. And her tears were creating streams and ponds and everything like that. And Coyote got really fed up, you know. And he told her to go jump in a lake. And she didn't. She's been there ever since. But that's why today you always see her perch looking up because she's always looking up to see one of her two children right (laughs) those are the etiological tags a lot of the stories have what we call the etiological tags how the world kind of got the way it is today well if you read them carefully and put them all in a semi-sequence you get a a total cloth thank you Gil that was one of my ideas that was what I was hoping I was kind to do but the cloth um it keeps being sewn, and we used to sew it all winter and sew over it and sew it around so that it was a, a wonderful mosaic of, of the earth we live on. A quilt. A quilt, yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah. yeah, I do too. Fun, fun, fun. Now, Coyote, in this same story, because he throws his sons up beyond the blue of the sky, so above the, the sky, mm-hmm. which is why they, you know, we can see them. He also creates something different. He creates death. Right. Now, is it, there was no death before this? There was no death. Well, again, you know, we, that we're going to start getting into that linear question again ah, that we keep trapping ourselves I in. I know. And so there probably was death a million different ways before, but 
At the time of the story, there was no death. Let's go there. Okay. So let's pretend there was no death. And then we have this story where Coyote does certain things that create death. As a consequence, death comes about. So, um, yeah, the, at the time when the people are living there in the village, um, Skunk doesn't have stripes yet, and this one doesn't have that yet, and all those kinds of things. Uh, bat looks a certain way before, uh, and then certain things It didn't things always happen. fly in a... In a in a group didn't always fly in a group no uh and and even things like wind certain winds had spirits and we believe that like the old people i remember uh, you know a couple of the old medicine people their songs had to do had to do with f- fog and rain and the spirits of those things well your fog spirit the, the woman fog what do we what is she called yes yeah yes. the fog yeah fog woman yeah fog yeah fog it, just fog, fog was a woman it was a female and, and that there are, you know, there, I imagine from the mountain, you know, you can see the fog coming in in, in different ways, you know, up through the Petaluma Gap. So you've yeah. got the Thule fog up through the middle and you've got the yeah. ocean fog rolling in, you know, as it does in that yeah. blanket at one time. And the people who were up on the mountain, how long ago would it have been when they were there? Well, we, we you know, every, I was just reading something how where they found footprints that show that we were on up there in Canada off British Columbia 13,000 years ago. 13,000 Who's counting? I mean, (laughs) you know, um, we believe we were here since time immemorial. I just finished writing a piece for the Redwood League, uh, their uh, their 100-year anniversary. Mm -hmm. And um, I talked about the stories that we heard about when the ocean rose up. And um, during the last Pliocene. Right. And Which is when the ice melted. When the ice yes. melted, yes. Yeah. And it rose up very high. And there's stories up, up at Kashaya where there's the story of at Gualala, at the Gualala River where there was the story of the whale in the creek. Mm. And when Robert Oswald, the linguist from Berkeley in the late 50s, was recording the language, he would divide the different stories like everyday talk or myth. And he, when somebody told up there told that story, he classified it as a myth. Well, interestingly enough, about four or five years later in the early 60s, a group of geologists were up there, and guess what? They found whale fossils there that dated to the same period. Mm. And then the story goes that when the water rose up, the people went up to Mount St. Helena and lived in caves. They went up there and carbon dated the walls and caves that dated to the same period. And that Um, was the source of obsidian for the whole region. Well, in Annadale Park, there's an area in Annadale Park where the most valuable. Oh, really? Yes, right over, right over near Annadale Park was the higher grade, if you will. Ah. Um, So, um, anyway, as I always tell my students, you know, when they want to know about the, did we come down the Bering Strait? Of course, my answer to people is, I don't know, but I have my Bering Strait. what oh, I, <laughs> that, that, that's a groaner. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but uh, as I always say, if, if this is a myth about the whale in the creek, then um, show me a piece of Noah's Ark. Right. I want Let's a splinter. Anything. Must be on Mount Ararat. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so back to this story about the mountain. When we were living on the mountain, we saw the redwood trees being very ancient and very old. We Like in the fog now, if you're up there on the mountain – um, often you'll see the tops of trees just poking above the fog. Mm-hmm. Imagine that water and then the water receding and the people watching the trees come back. Because wow. where we're sitting right now here, even in 
relatively modern times, this was all pretty much underwater right. during the winter. The Laguna area was, well, it was yeah, this all, water. all water. And um, uh, five, before 5,000 years ago, 5,000 years ago, there was a massive earthquake here. But the Russian River used to come straight down and go into the bay. And as a consequence of this huge earthquake 5,000 years ago, it shifted the direction of the river. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I have to look that up. I didn't know that. Yeah. But you know, just if See, you live things, around here, the clay. Yeah. Oh, the clay. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. because it was all water. It was underwater. Right. It was all. Right. And yeah. then the, the volcanic ash that's everywhere, too, and the, above the clay. Above the clay and all the rocks all over the mountains are you, all volcanic. You're volcanic. We would, you know, we go and garden where I live. Yeah. We get these things we call potato rocks because like your rocks and yeah. your story, they're all rounded. Now, obviously, they must have been rolled in a river to get that. I mean, I'm sorry. They must have been carved by a woodpecker to you, get that way. I was just going to, you, you you didn't let me get there, Gil. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and, but uh, I didn't, you know, because yeah. they're everywhere. Everywhere we do. Yeah. Yeah. And as our, um, you know, evidence of people living here, the arrowheads, the obsidian arrowheads, all of that sort of thing, you have to remember that at the time of contact, there were more people living in this area than anywhere outside the present site of Mexico City, which, of course, was the Aztec capital. And um, speaking more as many, I, I don't want to say more because the only places about equal are the central Philippines where there was so many different languages close by, completely different language families. Kos Miwok is a Panutian language. Pomo is a Hokan language. Mm -hmm. They're as different as English is from Chinese. And Hokan uh, goes into Oaxaca. The Oaxacan Indians speak a Hokan dialect, if you will, or language. Right, right. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, back to linguistics 101. Yeah. Absolutely. You have been listening to a very special word-by-word -word conversations with writers broadcast North Bay Public Media, KRSB-FM. That is because our conversation is with Greg Saris and his new collection of Miwok stories entitled How the Mountain Was Made. As Greg explains, the Miwok people's most important contribution to Sonoma County is our creation myths, yet they are known by very few people. As a storyteller, my task is to reimagine and share these tales with my neighbors. Greg Saris continues to share more tales in the next half hour of Word by Word. So... What, what do you want to share with our listeners about, is this the first of several books? Are we, are we have other myths to share? I, I hope so. I hope that I'll do more. I'm trying to, I've got um, a novel, I've got a collection of short stories and a novella ready to go, and I have a shorter, shortish novel ready to go, and I'm working on a novel, which I'm really excited about. Um, and, of course, I'm always writing essays and doing things like that. Uh, but I, I want to do more. I want to do more. I, wanna, I want to um, ex just fly. I want to just – I just want to fly. It's been, you know, the whole – I hate to even bring up the topic, but, um, but the, the whole battle that I went through to help all of us with the – get economically self-sufficient and have a casino. And as you know, if you read the press now, suddenly everybody loves us. We give all this money and it's all wonderful. And the politicians would have you believe they discovered the casino, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, but with that behind me, um, and of course, there's still work to do. And the, But um, um, I feel freed up now to continue writing. I've always written. I've got many things ready to go. But um, I'm at the moment, Gil, feeling 
ready to fly. And I'm inspired that you and others have really enjoyed the book. I, I started writing them for my people, and they were in the monthly newsletter. Right, <laughs> right, which is a wonderful way to share things. Yeah. Yeah, that and blogs. Now, I think, is it, is it okay if I share with one of the first times we met, you were writing the screenplay for Grand Avenue, which yeah. ended up being, you know, uh, produced by Robert Redford and went on to win all kinds of accolades. Yeah. <laughs> you reminded me of that. You reminded me of the house I lived in. And boy, after we talked, I guess that was a few weeks ago, Gil, uh, I went home remembering lots of things in addition to you being there because that was a period in my life. Wow. You know, I look at a lot of these young writers, a couple of young Indian writers now that are getting a lot of attention. And I remember Michael Doris, God rest his soul, said to me, Greg, this is a moment of your life. It'll never be like this again. You're the, You're the you know, you're the thing of the day. You're the hot new writer. You've got movie contracts. You've got book contracts and um, all this great stuff. Um, he was right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, boy, it was a very heady time. And, uh, I, you know, I'm older and I think I would handle it different, but differently. But, uh, you know, to have Redford calling you and, uh, be, you know, making movies and fighting about casting and keeping Cher out of the movie and, you know, um, that kind of thing. I never heard that story. So well, well, you have to well I mean, I think uh, there was a time when there was talk at HBO of wanting a big star like Cher. And, of course, I made a horrible joke. Um, and I said, yeah, I can just imagine her in that scene coming down from the reservation singing Half Breed. I don't think so. Um, so, you know, I, I brought Robert Redford to meet Well, my... you became executive producer, I assume, as part, as a way of preventing Yes, it. yes. But remember, executive producer, and, and I was an unproduced screenwriter at that point, which okay. means it was a three-hour show, which means they let me try to do the first hour. And if I failed, the contract was they'd bring in other writers. Oh. Second hour, if I failed, they'd bring in another writer, right? So I was always on edge. And... Um, so it was tough. But what I did is I, you know, just uh, brought Redford here and introduced him to a couple of my aunties. You know, we never say our women are fat. We say they're powerful. And I have a couple really powerful aunties. And uh, they pr approached Redford in their moomoos and rubber thongs and pink and purple foam curlers and said, take a good look at us. We ain't share. So, uh, <laughs> um, of course, one of my aunties. Well, was, they may be. You know, share may be part of them inside in their powerfulness, uh, their yes. power. Yeah, um, and they were pretty direct. I mean, one of my aunts, God rest her soul, my, the aunt I love so much, um, she uh, was eating pie when she met Redford, and she said, uh, just sit there, I want to look at you for a while. And then when she was done eating her pie, I don't think Redford's used to this kind of treatment, she said, you know, I'd like to take you down to the river and just lather you up. <laughs> There's only a certain age that, of women that can get away with that, right? Um, well, I don't know how many Indian women you know, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a good answer. That's a good answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> Is it okay if we go uh, to the last story in the book? Sure. I haven't read the first or the last probably since I wrote them, but uh, yeah. Because of what it does. Yes, you're... you're uh, prognosticator. You got it right when we came in. You said it, it ties together and you've, uh, as a coyote, you've tricked me into it, Gil. Right. This is an opportunity for you to hear um, the 16th, is it, story? Yes. Yeah. In How a Mountain Was Made, read 
by Greg Saris himself, and you will find that some of the characters you have met before. Um, and it begins, as you we talked earlier, there was once a pretty woman. It stands alone, so that may sound like I'm repeating, but um, Gil, but it's, that's important. That it's is part very of important to remind us. And in the way, uh, here she becomes wise and is paid for her wisdom, as there is that arc in the with all the stories that we get. We there is the potential to get smarter as we go. Learn from our mistakes. <laughs> Learn from our mistakes. All right. All right. Um, well, the title of the story here is "The Pretty Woman Latches Her Necklace." There was once a very pretty woman who lived near the top of Sonoma Mountain in a village alongside the headwaters of Copeland Creek. She fancied a young man from the bottom of the mountain who lived in a village at the edge of Katati Plain. Despite her beauty, this pretty woman felt unsure of herself. She worried that the young man she fancied might find another pretty woman to marry. Since he lived at the bottom of the mountain where many beautiful women from near the and far often visited his village. I worry that this man will not find me attractive, the pretty woman told her father. But how is that, daughter? You are young and beautiful and come from good people. Her father was a well-respected man. He possessed many songs, and people throughout the village sought his advice. They say this man was the nephew of the chief. He advised his daughter not to push her luck, that she should stand before the young man on her own merits. He reminded her that pushing one's luck, much like trickery, often brought regret. More importantly, he reminded her that true beauty, beauty that is everlasting, comes from the heart. Such beauty, he said to her, is stronger and more appealing than any beauty that might first meet the eyes. This young man you wish to marry, if he is worthy, will value beauty that is true and everlasting. This wise father gave his pretty daughter a beautiful necklace in order that the young man, indeed all of the people in the young man's village, would know who she was and where she came from. Do you even know yet if this young man is worthy of you, asked her father? If indeed he is a worthy man and happens to overlook you, this necklace will make him take notice of you. But will the necklace force him to marry me? Will the necklace charm him, she asked. You don't want to force anyone to marry you, said her father. You don't want to charm or trick a man. The young man must be someone who appreciates your true beauty. Unfortunately, this pretty woman did not take her father's advice. She had a dream of a hillside and actually knew of a hill which wasn't too far from her village, and she saw a string of rocks just below the hill's crest. She woke, and charmed by what she saw in her dream, figured she would make a necklace with those rocks that would be far more beautiful than the necklace her father had given her. That way, she would certainly capture the young man's heart. She employed the help of many animals in order to carry the rocks and then grind them down to size. But in the end, her pile of ground-down rocks washed down Copeland Creek, spilling near the bottom of the mountain, just below the bridge on Lehow Road. The pretty woman chased down the mountainside after her rocks. She looked for those rocks walking along the creek bed, but could not find them. It was a silly dream and a silly idea. Her father tried to reason with her, but she would not quit searching for those rocks. Many years passed, and the father became more and more worried about his daughter. I miss my daughter. How can I help her, he wondered aloud. This wise father knew many good things, but on the matter of a young woman's love for a man, 
he thought he should consult the council of wise women governors. These four old women advised even the chief on important matters concerning the villagers and life on the mountain. You did everything right, these old women told the father. That necklace made of clamshell disc beads and abalone pendants contained the songs and stories of this wondrous mountain, each bead a song, each pendant a story. If your pretty daughter went to Katati village wearing that necklace, the young man she met set her heart on, as well as all of the villagers there, would take special note of her, for they would recognize in that necklace all of the songs and stories she carried within her heart from the mountain. Thus they would not only find her beautiful to see, but also know her true worth. Yes, said the sad father, that is what I told her. I said the young man and the villagers would know that she came from this place where good people with good stories live. But did you remind her that she had the stories within her heart, that the necklace was just a reflection of her true and everlasting beauty? Well, maybe I didn't explain it quite that way, answered the father. Find the necklace, then go to the bottom of the mountain, talk to your daughter, the four wise women told him. But can I get through to her? Will she listen to me? The wise women did not hear this last question, for by the time the father finished talking, the four old women had gone. Many times over the years, the father had approached his daughter, pleading with her to return home, but to no avail. She was so obsessed with finding her lost rocks amidst the thousands of other rocks in the creek that she often would not even look up and acknowledge that her father was trying to talk to her. She believed still, even after many years, that if she found these rocks and put a necklace together, she would be able to attract the young man from Katati village. The wise father had no option but to try to talk to his daughter again, as the four old women suggested. In his daughter's empty bedroom, he found the necklace he had given her, which she had left on the floor, and then he went down to the bottom of the hill. There, just below the bridge over Copeland Creek, he found his pretty daughter walking amidst the rocks. This sight always saddened him greatly, for he could not bear to see his daughter so alone and beside herself. Holding the necklace up, he said, Daughter, please look up and remember me. The pretty woman looked up, and the glinting abalone pendants caught her attention. A faint memory of the beautiful necklace stirred in her. She stood looking for the longest time, and her father was happy that for the moment she had seized her endless wandering along the creek bed. You wanted a certain young man, and I offered you this necklace in order that you might appeal to him the father said, choosing his words carefully, but I forgot to remind you of something important. She looked at her father, yet the poor man was not certain that she even recognized him, that she wasn't only interested in how the necklace might help her in her pursuit. At least ten years had passed since this pretty woman left her village. All that time she had been wandering the creek bed day and night, and her father wondered if she still knew who she, he was. Listen, please, the father pleaded, it is me, your father, and I must tell you that this necklace contains the songs and stories of your home, this wondrous mountain, 
Each shell bead contains a song, and each abalone pendant one of the stories. Please, daughter, take the necklace with you and wear it for the young man and all of his villagers to see, for the necklace is but a mere reflection of these songs and stories in your heart, your true and everlasting beauty. To her father's surprise, the pretty woman reached out and took the necklace. She even thanked him, calling him father, which showed that she recognized him. But there was little feeling in her words. The father, sad father knew as much, and he made his way back up the mountain. The pretty woman figured that Katati village was not that far away, and that after searching the creek bed for so many years, she might try something new. So she went there, but she did not wear the necklace. Though it glinted in the sunlight and was beautiful, she thought it would do little to add to her beauty. She carried it in her dress pocket, saying to herself, I might look silly wearing this thing, and indeed if it has so much power, then the man of my dreams will notice me even if it is in my dress pocket. The villagers of Katati welcomed her. They offered her fresh blackberries to eat and were kind, but none seemed particularly impressed. She was treated with the same hospitality offered to any guest. Worse for this pretty woman, she saw the young man she fancied, and he paid her little attention. He was busy weaving a basket, and after looking up to see who had come into the village, he went back to his work. The pretty woman was so infuriated that when she got back to the creek bed, there below the bridge, she threw the necklace to the ground with such force that it broke into a million tiny pieces, disc beads and pendants scattering everywhere. Her father then shortly returned to see how her visit to Katati village had gone. Once again, to his surprise, she immediately recognized him, but she was angry. That necklace was worth a she scoffed. I broke it into a million pieces. When she told her father how she had carried it in her dress pocket, he said, well, of course you got no special treatment, for the villagers could not see it. Why must they see it, the daughter argued. I thought you said I was already beautiful enough. You are beautiful enough, answered her father, but you are ashamed of that necklace, and the villagers, if they noticed anything particular about you, it was your shame. So what must I do now, the pretty woman asked with little heart in her voice, the father, again greatly hurt by his daughter's disregard. Wonder if she would listen to anything he had to say. Still he answered her, you must find the disc beads and pendants and put the necklace back together again and then show it to the villagers just as I first told you. The saddened wise father wanted to say more, but it was clear to him that his pretty daughter was no longer listening. She had turned back to the creek. Surprisingly, the pretty woman gathered up as many disc beads and pendants as she could find. And then, with them cupped in her hand, she traveled back to Katati village. But alas, the people there were but generous and kind again, as with any guest, and the young man looked up from his basket only once and then went back to his weaving. Once back at the creek, and even angrier than before, the pretty woman hurled the beads and pendants to the ground, and as before, her father came, curious about her last visit. "'You are trying to deceive me,' she accused. "'Daughter, I wanted to tell you before that if the necklace wasn't strung together, just as when I gave it to you, it would have no power. You turned your back on me. Now you must listen to me and put the necklace back together, string the beads and pendants, and only then wear it for all to see.' 
The pretty woman stood looking at her father for some time. When she turned back to the creek once more, he left. He still wasn't convinced that his daughter listened to what he had to say. She had listened, but only as before, with the desperate hope that she might at last capture the handsome young man's heart. She searched the creek bed and found the many beads and pendants that she had for a second time left scattered on the ground. Then, sitting on a rock near the water, she began to sort the beads and pendants, trying to remember the necklace's pattern. The beautiful beads and glinting pendants intrigued her, and for the first time she forgot about the handsome man. Bead by bead, pendant after pendant, she began to reassemble the necklace as she remembered it. As she sewed, attaching each bead and pendant to the strip of deer hide, a strange and uncomfortable feeling began to come over her. She was lonesome, for now, as she held each bead and pendant, she remembered yet another song and story of her home, the wondrous mountain that she had forgotten for so many years. She worked and worked, day and night, for without hearing these songs and stories, she could not bear the loneliness. She was so taken with these memories from her home that when at last she finished the necklace, she could do nothing but to touch each bead and pendant, singing the songs and telling the stories aloud over and over until each was planted firmly in her heart and singing there. One morning, before she knelt over the creek to wash her face, she draped the necklace over a pair of small branches. There, glinting in the pool of water, was a reflection of the necklace, the white beads, each a speck of light, and the abalone pendants, a thousand tiny dancing rainbows. There, too, moving over the glassy surface of the water, amidst the reflections, was her face. Her heart turned and fluttered, she knew the mountain had always been there for her, and in that reflection she saw how beautiful she was in the specks of light and glinting tiny rainbows of the mountain's songs and stories. With the eagle's song, she found the necklace's abalone clasp. Then she lifted the necklace to her neck and latched the necklace. She traveled first to Katali village. As she approached the village, she was singing, singing, talking, a band of charms turning to stories, turning to light, turning to light, turning to light, this band of stones, the light in your heart. The villagers congregated to hear her stories, crowded close to her until the wee hours of the morning. At daylight, she started north toward Santa Rosa to the next village. Halfway there, near a bend in the road, she felt someone following her. When she turned to see who was there, she found a stranger. She did not recognize the white teeth and shiny hair. Rather, her gaze was fixed on the basket in the person's hands. The basket's intricate design of crisscrossing patterns intrigued her, and she could not stop looking at it. She thought it was the most beautiful basket she had ever seen. When she looked up and saw the person holding the basket, she knew he was no stranger. I began weaving this basket with no idea why, the handsome young man said to her. Seeing him, she barely remembered the young man she had fancied for so long. Certainly he was the same man, handsome and strong, but he was beautiful to her in a way she had never imagined. His, her heart beat fast, a million melodies inside of her ringing all at the same time. 
I listened to your songs and stories all night, he said, and then I knew why I made the basket. Wasn't my heart speaking to me all along? The basket's design matches your songs and stories. It is the design of the earth, and your songs and stories match the earth's design. You will go all over the earth telling stories. You can put the necklace in the basket. But I am to wear the necklace on my neck, she told him. Ah, yes, but the basket can let people know you are approaching. But my song does that, she said. You will go far. He said, the earth will get noisy and crowded in the future. The forgetters will come, the ones who forget the stories. People not be, might not be able to hear you singing them. Please give me the necklace and let me show you something. The pretty woman hesitated, but hearing the words of the floral wise woman in what the young man said about her traveling here and there to tell stories, she acquiesced and handed him her necklace. She took the necklace and draped it over the top of the basket. Then he walked to the top of a nearby hill and set down the basket and necklace. When he returned, she was perplexed. What are you doing? she asked him. He pointed to the top of the hill. Clouds pitched and rolled there. She saw nothing else. But then when the sun flashed between the clouds, to her amazement, an enormous rainbow rose from the basket high into the sky. You see, the handsome young man said, Everywhere you go now, you will have a rainbow to let people know where you are. Even the forgetters, they will see the rainbow and wonder and then be hungry for a story. But how did you make the rainbow, the pretty woman asked, still perplexed. I wove the basket tight enough to hold water. The basket holds a little pool of water from Copeland Creek. It is enough water, all that is needed to reflect into the sky a necklace so beautiful. That's what happened then. The last magic spirit on the mountain was created, the rainbow. The handsome young man, following the long-established tradition, asked ever so humbly if the pretty woman would teach him a special song that he could learn in order to become her true and loving husband. As you might guess, she taught him the song. He first heard her singing when she approached the village. And now they are married. The two of them go about singing the song as he accompanies her to tell the stories. The two voices are quite loud. But if the world is too noisy, anyone can still see a rainbow. The pretty woman often returned home to visit her father and the other villagers. But then she was on her way again, joining her husband at Katati village. People claim you can sometimes still see the pretty woman coming and going. They say the best place to catch a glimpse of her is just past the bridge over Copeland Creek. She's often sitting amidst the rocks, perhaps remembering her story. Maybe it's her daughter or granddaughter, or maybe her spirit. People say they have heard her singing her beautiful song, even when they have not been able to spot her. One man claims that while hiking amidst the rocks there early one morning, he found her sitting on a rock behind a clump of willow. He heard her telling stories. She started, he said, by saying to him, this is the story of Sonoma Mountain. Thank you so very much. You have been listening to Word by Word on North Bay Public Media KRCBFM. The storyteller is Greg Saris. The book, How a Mountain Was Made. Thank you. Thank you, Gil. Thank you.